As you know, if you've been here for a while, we're working our way through the book of Acts. We're all the way to chapter 18 this morning. You can start turning there as I speak. But we've titled this message this morning, Running on Empty. And maybe for some of us, as you're walking in this morning, you're like, it couldn't be more relevant to where I'm at as some of us are leading up to vacations and pauses that are coming in the next, uh, in the weeks to come. But as we're turning to that scripture, I want to ask a question because I think there's kind of two types of people in this room. And maybe you, as it relates to running on empty, those of us that when you see your gas tank get to about a quarter full you're heading to the gas station. You're like, hey, I'm responsible. I'm going to go fill that up before I get in a bad situation. So that's one type of person maybe in this, this room. Anyone, that person. Then the other type of person is the person that waits until it's sucking the very final fumes from the tank of gas. Then you finally consider pulling over. Anybody else that were confession time, we're in church. Anyone else, that, that person, doesn't count if you have an electric car, but uh, you get the, the idea uh, here as the, the, the person, that uh, battery life, the, 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 the person here that waits to the very last second. My wife is that person. She is notorious for that. In fact, last week, I saw her, I was in the car, and I don't know if you have your, in your car where it has that triple meter where it tells you well, how many miles you have until you're out of gas, which is kind of a, a dangerous thing. Well, her truck has that. And I noticed, I like, honey, uh, your car it has 13 miles till you're on empty. I was like, do you want me to run up and uh, fill it up for you? You know, anything? She's like, no, it'll be fine. I'm getting off on the Ray's Adobe exit tomorrow morning. I'll fill up then. I'm like, honey, that's like nine miles. She's like, yeah, see, we're fine. So, so, so you see, there, there's people that have that mentality, and not just in gas, but also in life. Let's be real here. In, in this group of people, there's people that push themselves at 90 miles an hour. They're going, going, going until they finally crash. Some people, my wife's also notorious for this, for at the end of the day, two minutes and she's asleep. Like, no, there, there's nothing uh, needed, no, no ramping down aspect. For many of us, that's the way we operate. Just go, go, go. And if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to get less and less productive and more and more irritable. That's how it seems to work for those of us that run at 90 miles an hour, just going until we are forced to slow down. Well, what if, what if there were a better way to live than that? What if there's an alternative? What if there's some, some clues from God's word as to a, an a alternative method and approach to life this morning? I would suggest by looking at the story of Paul, we're going to get some clues into what that life looks like, absent of irritability, absent of the Superman mentality, absent of running until you're breathing just your final fumes. Let me pray just before we dive in. God, we come to you this morning and acknowledge our weakness, many of us in that area, that we have a tendency to push further than we should all, all by ourselves and get into the mentality of, I can do this, I can push through. Pray this morning that you'd speak to us this, in this text, that you'd be alive and working in this room, that it wouldn't be about me talking, it'd be you literally speaking to people specifically this morning that need a word of encouragement. I thank you for this text. I thank you for how relevant your word is to our lives, even for us a couple thousand years later. God, we invite you now to speak in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 18, it's a lot easier if we uh, read this together, starting in verse 1. 
have this idea that Paul just keeps on going. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. We'll stop there for a moment to give a little bit of a backdrop, if you will. The first two words of this chapter say this, after this. What is that referring to? If you haven't been here, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he's been through a ton. In fact, here's a, a map for us map people that like to see where he's been on his journey. Started in the upper right area uh, there of the town of Antioch, and has kind of worked his way city to city, and he's experienced so much. He's finally landed where the arrow is in Corinth. This is present-day Greece, and he's landed there, and really, when it says all this, he has been through so many obstacles. He's been rejected. He's been wrongfully accused, beaten, imprisoned, chased from town to town, brought before city officials, mocked, and even in the last city, you remember, he was in Athens. He was brought before the city council, and he had the opportunity to share the gospel. He eloquently presented it to little to no response to all of these leaders. So he's arriving. He's showing up just worn out. He's showing up. It's one of those kinds of tireds, and maybe you've been there, the kind of tired where it's not just one night's sleep and you're going to feel better. Anybody been there before where you're just like, man, I, I need a, a, a major like overhaul. I describe it. Here's the best a modern parallel in my opinion. He was a Disney tired, a Disney tired. When I, when I say Disney tired, young parents, you know what a Disney tired is. Extreme heat, crying kids, long lines unhealthy food, crowds watching your savings account emptied. All of these things have the effect of you leaving you, oh, I'm just done. I'm just finished. So that's where, where Paul is showing up. He's Disney tired as a modern day parallel. And he's moved all the way from Athens to Corinth, which is about a 50 mile hike. When's the last time you did a 50-mile walk? Can you imagine? That's, again, Disney parallel, like walking to your car at the end of the day. This, this idea, he is worn out. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he describes this situation. He says this. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness makes sense. We've already addressed that. He's just physically worn out. But the, the fear and trembling, what's that all about? I'd suggest that that has something to do with the city itself. Last week, we described Athens, the city that he was in before, as kind of the modern-day Los Angeles. Well, probably the better description of Corinth would be the modern-day Las Vegas. It was known for being the center of every possible type of sin. Their two main issues or vices would be greed and sensual lust. Two main vices that literally set the tone for the entire region. They were known for worshiping not many gods, one god primarily, the god of Aphrodite, the god of love, right? Which was anything but the god of love, false love, if anything. There was known for in her temple having over a, a thousand temple prostitutes that served the entire community. 
pretty dark era. So when he's showing up here, it, it's, it's not uh, just a, a fear of like well, the, the boogie monster. He's literally fearful because he's going into a town that's probably to this point the greatest testing ground for the power of the gospel against strongholds of any city he's been in yet. So he's showing up there, major obstacles, a lot going on. In God's kindness, we see it there in the text, he's brought him along to meet a cool couple that ends up being ministry partners for years and years, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla, what's unique about them is they had the same trade as Paul. A Jewish kid, when they were brought up, had a family trade that they would learn, and that was kind of the thing that they leaned into for resources. So they come across this couple, most likely already believers. They set up camp, no pun intended, uh, but, but then they set up and start working to provide for one thing that Paul wants to keep after it, and where does he head? Heads straight back to the synagogue goes straight back to the same thing he's been doing in this entire journey. He gets to a city, and what does he do? It describes there that he reasoned with them in the synagogue. Reasoned has this definition, dialogue with intent to persuade. Dialogue with intent to persuade. So he's dialoguing with the leaders there, trying as best as he can to persuade them that Jesus was the Christ. So he's like the energizer bunny. He just keeps on going and going. Let's see how this catches up to him. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reveled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, otherwise known as Rice, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, sorry, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, I want to stop there for a second. So you see what's happening Timothy and Silas were his two closest companions. They had been in the previous cities that he had traveled to. They finally catch up to him. When they finally catch up to him, they find him, it says, occupied. Occupied with what? Busy in ministry, trying to convince people that Jesus was the Christ. And it says, though, we see a little something different about how his response is to rejection this time. What does it say? It's that he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go on to the Gentiles. Now, when I read that, I say, man, that doesn't seem like really true to his character. Were those statements true? Your blood be on your head. Yes, that's true. In other words, this, that someone that's heard the gospel message and has chosen to reject it and do their own thing, they're responsible for that. That's an accurate statement. In fact, Romans 1 says even what we've seen of God in creation, we're still held responsible for that. So Romans 1 confirms that. Is it accurate? Yes. He also says, I'm innocent of their blood. In other words, I've shared the truth with you. I don't have any more responsibility here. Eh, that's probably also true. But this balance of truth and grace, the question I have for you, was that statement very loving? Was that statement very loving? Eh, there's some debate there. 
Some might say sometimes in love, someone needs a stern rebuke. Any dads ever have to have that with your children? I I imagine in this room, sometimes a stern rebuke. But I say more often than not, 1 Corinthians 13 describes love, that love is patient, love is kind, love is not irritable. Does this seem like maybe a version of Paul that's a little bit cranky? Do you think this is is possible that our hero of the faith is actually having a rough day? Is that, that possible that maybe he said some things out of emotion that maybe he shouldn't have? I think that's exactly what happened here. I think this is cranky Paul. Anybody, anybody confess and you have those days that you're just like, and I am just done. I'm fed up. I've, I've shared with you all I have to share. I don't have anything else to say. I am finished. Confession time. Anybody have that day? In fact, anybody in the last week have that day? Uh, since we're being transparent here, I'll share a story this past week. So we have a, a new addition to our family since uh, January. His name is Buns. So Buns is a lop-eared bunny, uh, very cute, and uh, we have a lot of fun with Buns. But one of the things that I've realized is there's kind of a timeline with Buns where Buns can be out of the cage with no accidents, and then there's a timeline where it starts to be pushing it. Well, we have cream carpet upstairs. I don't know what Brainiac put that in before us. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, th- this idea, so the Buns, I, I come home, had a full day of work, not just a full day. Then we had evening meetings. That happens uh, fairly often. Get home. It's 9 o'clock, 9.30. I'm just finished. I'm in on the, in on the bed, and I, I was like, honey, somebody needs to put the rabbit away. It's going to pee on the carpet, you know? And Adrian, Adrian picks up the bunny, and not, not to be too graphic, but I'm laying there with my shirt off on the, on, the, on the bed. She takes the rabbit, and she's like, oh, honey, you just need some good old buns love. She sets buns right on top of me on my chest, and I'm like, at first I'm kind of leaning into it. Then I just feel this warm sensation. Starts on my chest, starts working its way down, down my neck. Down, one, one of those angles where it starts going down my back, the curve of my back. I'm, I'm drenched in, in, in rust-colored rabbit pee. I was done. It was one of those times where it was like, it, it wasn't, you don't even get cranky. It was almost comical. It was like, I can't even believe this is happening to me right now. I think this was Paul's buns moment. Like, I, I think this was the moment where he's just like, I'm done with you guys. I've explained this every possible way, and you just don't seem to get it. It's not clicking. It's not, it's, it's not resonating with you. And so because of that, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm going to start reaching out to the Gentiles instead. And here's what I love as you see this in the text there. Where does he move on to? He sets up camp next door to the synagogue. Literally the house right next door to it. They they must have been like, hey, Paul, we can still hear you. Like we still hear you talking in there. But but he's he's not exactly a a tough guy and moves uh, to the other side of town, other side. And still we see that he's having an impact on Jews. Why? Because Crispus, Rice, actually embraces Jesus Christ. He's the ruler of the synagogue, and he comes to believe the Lord, and his entire family is baptized. How awesome is that? Can you imagine how that would have shaken up things? In that day and age, the synagogue that's been opposing Paul and been pushing back and rejecting it, and the head person, like the lead pastor, if you will, says, I'm in. I I embrace this truth. That would have shaken everything up. And so that's what's happening there. And it says that a good many of Corinthians believed in that day and age. So 
Here we have Paul, who's running on empty. He's a little bit cranky, and yet God's still using him to influence and have an impact. What in the world should he do? What do we do here when you're going at 90 miles an hour, but you're still having influence, and you're doing things that matter and are significant? That's where God steps in and meets him at his place of need. Look in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Stop there for a second. What's the explanation of what's going on? He literally has an interaction with God. And his lowest point, when he's running on empty, when he's cranky with everyone around him, God meets him in that place of need. Tells him two things. Don't be afraid don't be silent. Fear, why would he tell him not to be afraid? We already saw that because he is afraid and God doesn't tell us things that we don't need to hear. He meets him with that, tells him not to be afraid. And if you think about it, it only makes sense that he would be a little bit afraid. Wouldn't you you think about Paul? He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been uh, stoned. Like he'd probably have a little bit of a twitch to him, you know? Like he walks by a a pile of rocks and he's like, oh. You know, like like he's a little anxious. But really, if you think about it, at the root of fear, at the root of fear, that is fear in and of itself is a clue that you're running on empty. Fear is a clue that you're running on empty. It tells you that you're depending too much on who? Me, myself. I can't do this. I can't go any longer. And God must be like, exactly. That's where you need me. So instead, though, listen to what what I found fascinating is he gave exactly the same account or same words of encouragement that us as parents give our kids. You remember the era where maybe your kids would be up at night, kind of awoken from scared of the dark or whatever? What would you do? Okay, dads, this one's for you. What would you say to your kids? You'd say, go into them, you'd talk to them, you'd be like, it's okay. Why is it okay? Because I'm with you. Okay, that's that's encouragement. I'm present with you. What's the second thing you'd say? And I'm not going to let anything hurt you, right? Isn't that so cool that our loving father still speaks to us in the same way that we know we need to speak to our children. He comes to him and says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm not going to let anything harm you. I've got you covered. I've got you in this. And so he goes on, he meets him, and he gives promises of what? His presence and his protection, both things that we often need to hear. If you're ever looking and you're in a season of doubt and despair, man, do a study on God's promises. And uh, you start looking through scripture, it is packed with his promises to his kids. He promises to care for us. And here's the thing that I found was also interesting, is that if you think about what you would have given advice to Paul, you wouldn't say, like a human perspective, you would have said, hey Paul, I think you need to take a break. I think you need to slow down. You need to take a rest. Wouldn't that be the advice if you're a human perspective? I find it interesting. He doesn't say that. He says, keep going. Don't be silent. Don't stop talking. Keep after it because you're making an impact. Keep on keeping on. I'm like, that doesn't seem like very good advice. But here's the important thing. Because in their humanness, we'd say, slow down, take a rest, find some margin. 
What God says is the opposite. He says, I am sufficient. I'm sufficient for you. Because what happens when we slow down and take a rest, what do we do? We slow down, we get a nice nap, we feel a little bit better, and we go back to our old self-reliance and doing things absent of his presence and absent of his support in our own strength. God's saying, you don't need to slow down. You need a reminder of your need for me. Some of us in our busyness, in our, in our hectic schedule, just need to be reminded that he is sufficient for you, even in the crazy times, even in the busy schedules, in all of that, he is sufficient. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't need to take a rest, and I get the whole idea. God put a Sabbath in place as a, as a healthy thing for the believer, but here he's reminding him specifically, I am with you, and I will sustain you. We're not done. We're not finished until we breathe our very last breath. I love it, uh, Mary Collins, who's in our church, uh, and her husband, Cass. Cass just recently had his 90th birthday. It was uh, fun celebrating that with them and the family. I love what, what Mary's advice is to Cass. She says this. I, I had this quote passed on to She tells Cass, it's not time for you to meet Jesus yet because your testimony isn't finished. Your testimony isn't finished. In other words, there's still work to be done while we're on this side of the fence. On this side of the fence, there's still work to be done. And here in this, this interaction with God, he reminds them that, listen, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people, which is fascinating to me because what? They're in the most miserable, dark, pagan culture, sexually motivated, money motivated, messed up culture possible. God's saying, hey, I've got some people in this town. You just need to be faithful with your witness. Doesn't that take some, some uh, weight off on evangelism too? Because what our verbal witness does is it just exposes who's part of the family and who's not part of the family. He's saying keep on speaking. It will expose who is part of the family within this city. And he does it. He does it. It says that he stays. What? How long does it say that he stays? Another year and a half, 18 months. That's the very longest of any of his stops that he spent anywhere. He keeps on, he listens to God's voice and stays another 18 months. It's believed that he definitely where he wrote First and Second Thessalonians there, possibly Romans and Galatians as well, because he chose to be faithful to God's promises. And we'll see in this last section whether or not God proves to be faithful to his promises. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They had a law not to add any new religions in that day. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of a question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. 
pretty powerful description. Let me explain what's happening here. So this is where we're seeing whether or not God's true to his, uh, his promise. First off, this is a new pro-council, which would be kind of the, the governor of that town. He's new in position. So the Jews see this as an opportunity. They're like, all right, this is the perfect opportunity. This is kind of like, remember in school when you'd have a substitute teacher? Like, you'd be like, oh, man, all rules, all game is off. We are taking advantage of this situation. This is the same idea. This is like a substitute teacher that's been put in, in power. And I love about this is that when you actually research this, these literally timelines of when people uh, were in government. Gallio was in about 51 AD. He was a popular brother to the famous philosopher named Seneca. So he's a newbie. He's brought in. And they think, all right, he's new to this whole system. He's also probably wanting to gain favor with his audience, right? So this is the best time possible to bring Paul before him. Paul gets there. Paul's got to be thinking to himself, all right, here we go again. I've been here before. I've stood before this before. And I love what the text says. Before Paul is able to say anything, God steps in on his behalf. He didn't even have to defend himself. All of a sudden, a Roman official is standing up in his defense. The Roman official determines, hey, listen, this is a semantics thing. This isn't a change from Judaism. This is just a change of some terms. So it's not a new religion. He's not buying that. He's saying, because of that, this is your problem to solve. I want nothing to do with it pretty powerful if you think about it. This all of a sudden they're silencing the audience saying, I'm not going to meet and I'm not going to address this. You've got to figure it out as well. The opposing Jews, if you think about it, fell into the net they had set for Paul. All of a sudden, what does it say? The new leader of the synagogue is beat up. The, the, the local citizens most likely saw this apathy towards Jewish culture, say, hey, here's an opportunity to beat up a Jew. Jews have always been hated by the culture in which they're enveloped. So here, they beat him up, sending the message. Do you, how, how quickly do you think the next leader was interested in having accusations against Paul? Uh, that didn't go well last time. And here, here's the neat thing, as I was doing a little extra research on this, is in that day and age, similar to our court system, when a law was established, it set precedent for a region. So in that day and age, when that was established, this then started 12 years of non-government pursuit against the, the building of the church. So that set precedent for all the surrounding towns. God was faithful to his promise to protect. God was also faithful to his promise to save and draw people that you wouldn't expect to be believers. Here's the reason I bring that up. 1 Corinthians 1.1 is listing a believer, a, a young believer that Paul's put his trust in. Guess what the guy's name is? That's not a common name, I'm guessing, back then. So Sosthenes is listed as one of the new believers of the early church. So even this guy, he came from getting beat up by his peers or whoever the followers there, is now elevated to being a follower of Jesus Christ. God takes something that seemed beyond human repair, and he's like, man, when you're weak, that's when I can step in. And that's so powerful even in our own lives when we come to the place where we realize we are not Superman. In fact, tell the person next to you, you are not Superman. That's good for us to remind each other of. Some people find great joy in telling the person they're with. That's important for us to understand. 
And when we come to that realization, that's when God's like, man, now I can display my power. When you finally put on the shelf the idea that you can do all of this on your own. I like the story of a stewardess telling a, about an interaction she had on an airplane with Muhammad Ali. She had asked, had the opportunity with Muhammad Ali to ask him. She noticed he, he didn't have his seatbelt on. And so asked him on the plane just before he was taking off, uh, Mr. Ali, would you, would you mind uh, putting your seatbelt on? To which she responded, he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she responded, Superman don't need no airplane either. Now put the belt on. I love that idea, that picture. You're not Superman. You can't do all this on yourself. It doesn't mean you need to stop what you're doing. It just means that you need to stop doing it in your own strength. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this text. I thank you for this word and reminder to us. I'm confident that this wasn't new information that Christ was with Paul. But it's so quickly that we forget that. So quickly that we wander into our own way of doing things independent of him and in our own strength. God, I pray for anyone in this room this morning that's been on that rabbit trail of self-reliance, independence, self-sufficiency, that we would come back, come back to your presence, come back to your rescue, come back to you being the one that's driving the ship. I thank you for that invitation. I thank you for this reminder that when we're running on empty, when we're finally out of gas, God, that's when you fill the gap. We praise you for that reality. You're so good. You're so faithful. You're so patient with us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Just a reminder for us this week to seek his presence, to cling to his promises. That's how you survive from running on empty. Just a quick thing, just for those of you that are maybe willing to serve for five minutes following the service. I hate to put the weight on the guys, but maybe we could step up one time, even on Father's Day. These chairs need to leave this room for the kids program tomorrow. If you wouldn't mind giving us a couple minutes of help. Otherwise, God bless you. Enjoy some hot dogs on your way out.